0: If you would open your Bibles to Job chapter 28. Job 28. Today we continue in our series on the book of Job. It's a series that we began after we completed a series on Habakkuk, both of them in the midst of this pandemic. We have gathered every Sunday here at Melrose, worshiping with singing, with praying, with hearing scripture read and preached, sharing matters. ...for which we are thankful and the various needs we trust God to meet. We are grateful for how God has kept us and sustained us. Nowhere is physical safety guaranteed. But praise be to God, this place is a sanctuary. It is by his grace that these doors have remained open and will remain open... ...until he shows us differently... ...for those who are hungry for communion in bread, in the word, and in fellowship. We come to Job chapter 28. Apparently, after Job's speech, his friends have nothing else to say. It's Zophar's turn to speak, but he does not. As I mentioned last week, uh, several points from here to the end, chapter 31, the end of Job's speech, he's the only one speaking. And it seems at certain points he pauses, like, One of you guys want to jump in and say something, but no one does. They have nothing more to say. His friends have failed to comfort him or convince him by their teaching, so now it is his turn. He has the stage to himself. And in this chapter, we sense a change of tempo and of tone. For 25 chapters, we have been bombarded with material about Job's anguish, along with the impassioned explanations of his friends. Of, this is why these things have happened to you. So on the one side, you have Job's friends um, saying it is all his fault. He's receiving what he deserves, some wickedness he has committed. And they some, say some pretty horrible things about their friend, Job. But on the other side, Job desperately, in the midst of his suffering, protests that he is innocent. And he, in fact, questions God as to why all of this is happening. We have listened now for these weeks as they've talked past each other and pointed the finger at each other. They've become more and more frustrated, the friends seeking to justify God, Job seeking to justify himself. And so Job has become, I would argue, less temperate. He's become more intemperate in his responses as his friends misrepresent. His position. You may remember that different times are like, you said this, and he never said that. And that can be quite frustrating. So perhaps now is time for a break, to sort of back off a bit and have an objective reflection. Maybe we need to back away from the debate at this point. That's what chapter 28 provides for us. It might well be called a hymn. To Wisdom. It's quite different than anything that we've come across thus far. There are two things to note about this hymn to wisdom. First of all, it does provide that break between the dialogue or the dialogue between uh, Job and his friends. But then in chapter 29, 30, and 31, we have sort of Job's last stand. He will make a final case as to why these things should not have happened to him. And then, in chapter 32 up to 37, we hear from someone we've never heard of. That's Elihu. Uh, A friend comes along, and he basically says, a pox on both your houses to the friends and to Job. And then God himself will speak in an amazing way. A few words about wisdom. We've looked at this in the past, so just to remind you. In the Old Testament, in the wisdom tradition, There are three types of human wisdom. The first is what we would call proverbial, from proverb, wisdom. These are common sense statements about life and behavior, usually passed on, we see in Proverbs, from father to son, Solomon to his son, from teachers to students. This is what we find in the book of Proverbs. The second type of wisdom is the wisdom of intellectual exploration. The searching for answers to the riddles of life, this is what we find in the book of Ecclesiastes. The third type of wisdom is the wisdom found in what we would call science and technology. In that time, skill in making and producing things, including crops. This is something that Dave mentioned in one of his sermons, that someone, let's say in 3000 BC, or even earlier, would be more scientific than someone who uses a laptop today, because... Today, you're just clicking in the keys. You're not actually producing something, whereas a fisherman back in the day or a farmer would have to experiment and come up with the best way to catch fish or to produce good crops. It is this third type of wisdom that Job speaks about today in Job 28, this hymn to wisdom. Each of these types of wisdom, by the way, demonstrate an ability to cope. So in Proverbs we find coping with the ordinary demands of day-to-day morality. What decision should I make? Look at the book of Proverbs. In Ecclesiastes, it is to cope with knowing what to do, how to govern, and how to rule. Then thirdly, how to cope with raw materials used in life. This is what we will see today in our chapter. In every one of these spheres, if it be the book of Proverbs, if it be Ecclesiastes, or the book of Job. True knowledge depends on obedience to God, as in the fear of the Lord, not on natural or theoretical knowledge. This hymn has three stanzas, two refrains, and then a finale. The first is the longest part, verses 1 through 11, human ingenuity or the genius of man. Follow along, if you would, as I read verses 1 311. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to the darkness. He searches the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from where people dwell, he cuts a shaft in places forgotten by the foot of men. Far from men, he dangles and sways. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Sapphires come from its rocks, and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eyes has seen it. Sorry, no falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it, and no lion prowls prowls there. Man's hand assaults the flinty rock and lays bare the roots of the mountains. He tunnels through the rock. His eyes see all its treasures. He searches the sources of the rivers and brings hidden things to light. This section might, in fact, seem to present problems, a section that praises the ingenuity of mankind. Isn't it rather presumptuous to say such wonderful things about human beings? Let's set that aside for a moment. For our purposes, the question is, how does this fit in with the flow of the book? Because it seems it might seem quite abrupt, it gets a form of knowledge whiplash, if you wish. It's like we've we've shifted directions too quickly. A break is fine, but shouldn't there be continuity? Well, there is, in fact, continuity. If you think about it, what was the last thing that Bill Dad said? Do you remember the last thing he said? How much less man who is but a maggot. A son of man who is only a worm. This is at the end of a very short chapter in which, among other things, Bildad makes the case that humans are not redeemable and that human beings are insignificant. And then he closes it off by saying they're nothing but maggots and worms. Well, Job responds in chapter 26, the very next chapter, by speaking of God's greatness. And he says in verse 14, a wonderful verse, and these are but the outer fringe of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. He speaks of the magnificence of God's creation. And Job's like, this is just a whisper. Wait till you hear God's thunder. In chapter 27, he responds by speaking of his own integrity. And now in chapter 28, he exalts humanity as those made in the image of God. He describes the wonder of man in terms of abilities. In verse three, the intellect puts an end to darkness. In verse three, also persistence. He searches every recess. Curiosity, he explores the unknown. Vision, he sees better than the falcon. Courage, he acts more fiercely than the lion in verse eight. Industry, he levels mountains and cuts through rocks verses nine and 10. Discernment. He perceives the precious. He see, his eyes see all the treasures. Creativity. It provides alternative, uh, productive alternatives. He tunnels through the rock instead of going over the mountain. Insight. He brings the hidden to light. Humankind is, in fact, quite ingenious. And Job here praises the ingenuity of human beings. There is, however, a tendency to view human ingenuity as existing in our time as being far greater than anything that ever happened before us. I think this is just arrogance, no question that we have made great strides, but what we fail to recognize is what we have today is a result of those who have come before us. We didn't sort of just settle on these things out of nowhere. and that ingenuity is not always manifested in the same way. We don't know all that has gone on before us. And we don't have explanations. We're still trying to figure out the pyramids and things like that. How did people do this? I remember watching a, a documentary once in which uh, the, the person speaking argued that in the time, let's say, BC, before Christ, that there was, in fact, um, it wasn't simply mathematical a calculation that people did, but they had an intuitive sense of how things should be done. And we've lost sight of that, and we think we're far greater than anything that has come before us. One author has, in fact, pointed out that many of the technologies we have today are a reflection of what Job spoke of. Um, the intellect, he puts an end to darkness. The author here speaks of worldwide communication. Persistence that searches out every recess, we have cancer research. Curiosity that explores the unknown, oceanography, which people plumb the depths of the oceans. Vision that sees better than the falcon, what about laser technology? Courage that acts more fiercely than a lion, and here the author speaks of space exploration. Industry that reshapes the environment, we'll look at urban development. Discernment that perceives the precious, organ transplantation, creativity that provides, or that provides productive alternatives, solar energy, and it goes on and on. We must not think that our age alone has this ingenuity. Job's point is this, and let's not miss it, let's embrace it, what a marvelous creature is a human being. but there's still a question that remains unanswered in verse number 12. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? In other words, how do human beings, how do they find the capacity to do all these things? Where do they get wisdom and understanding? We'll come back to this again. Stanza two is found in verses 13 through 19. A confession that ingenuity of human beings is not found in human beings. Look at verse 13, man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. What is the it's there? It's wisdom, verse number 12, where can wisdom be found? Well, man does not comprehend its worth. Verse 14 says, it, that is wisdom, is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or sapphires. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Kush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. One might think, or one would think, that with all the things that we have been able to do, that we would appreciate the value of wisdom. We would comprehend the value of wisdom, and we would know where to find it. And the reality is, no. Which is quite tragic and ironic, because the higher the technology, the greater the need for wisdom. But we live in an age in which the question is not asked, should we do that, but can we do that? Wisdom is what says, ask should we in fact do that? But for all our ingenuity, now in the 21st century, the value of wisdom is not appreciated, nor is the source of wisdom sought. No one looks for where wisdom comes from. I would argue that in our day, wisdom, if it is appreciated at all, is viewed as a commodity. We fail to appreciate its true value. In one of my lectures, and my students, I speak of the changes that happen in the world in the 19th century into the 20th century. We end up with a new trinity in the West, science that will allow us to know everything, technology that will allow us to do anything, and the market which will allow us to buy anything. But wisdom cannot be purchased. It cannot be bought. It is not a commodity. So now the question is repeated here in the second refrain. If you look at verse number 20, where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? The answer to these questions and the questions in verse number 12, the first refrain, is now found in the verses that follow, verses 21 to 27. Wisdom belongs to God alone. Verse 21, it is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells, for he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he measured the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. As in the second stanza, Job is searching for wisdom. And he acknowledges that it is hidden from the eye of every living thing. But it's also hidden in those things which are beyond us. And we saw this last week. Death and uh, destruction and death. Sheol and Abaddon. These things that we fear, that we do not understand. even these things do not know where wisdom is. And having exhausted the witness of the seen and the unseen, the earthly and the unearthly, if you wish, one must conclude that wisdom is, in fact, a transcendent quality. So Job turns to God. He alone knows and understands where wisdom comes from, where it can be found, and where it dwells. That God knows where wisdom is can be seen in his work of creation. Four mysterious forces of nature, if you wish. The wind, the waters, the rain, the thunderstorm. And here I think we, again, need to be very conscious of our scientific thinking, which has explanations for all these things. Wind is the result of cold air and hot air coming into contact. But sometimes the wind blows lightly, refreshing the earth, and other times it blows violently inflicting great destruction. The waters, the sea, the vast seemingly measureless waters of the ocean, God has precisely measured them. They are under his control. The rains, here we are told that not only has God established, but he has made a decree with regard to rain. And then the thunderstorm, he makes a path for the thunderstorm. We For all our scientific knowledge cannot predict which way uh, a tornado, a thunderstorm, a hurricane will go. We can make predictions and then oftentimes found to be wrong because it goes in a different direction. God in fact has charted a course for the thunderstorm. He knows precisely where it is going to go. In Verse 27 Job affirms, he asserts that from the beginning God has determined wisdom's essence God is the one who created wisdom, and God knows its value. This means that God used wisdom in in creating the world, and he uses wisdom in governing the world. But above all, God created wisdom. It's not wisdom and God underneath. It is God who is the creator, and he created wisdom. A side note here. The case can be made that as Job presents... um, man's advancement in technology, if you wish. Uh, He gives us the science, the steps, that man does. And that Job then turns around and says that this is precisely what God does in discovering wisdom. So the scientific method, you observe the facts, you define the problem, you test the alternatives, you analyze the evidence, you report the results, and then you apply the principles. Job says God does the same thing. He looks to the ends of the earth. He's observing. He establishes a weight for the wind. He defines the problem. He measures out the waters. He tests the alternatives. He sets a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt. He analyzes the evidence. Then he declares the discovery of wisdom that he has seen, prepared, and explored. This is reporting the results. He applies his finding to man by saying what we find in the last verse of this chapter. This is the sixth thing, you apply the principle. And what is the principle? Look at verse number 28. And he said, that is God said to men, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. We cannot discover the way to wisdom. We cannot find wisdom unless we have the fear of the Lord. We can only gain understanding by avoiding or shunning evil. Fear is the proper response of a human being in the presence of a holy God. That we bow in submission. We acknowledge that God is great and we are not. He's infinite and we're not. People have really struggled with the matter of the fear of the Lord, but this is not a great example. But who is who is the most famous person that you want to meet? Whether dead or alive, if somehow you could go back and meet this person, what would your approach be? Would you like shake their hand, high five. I mean, would there not in fact be this sense of You're an amazing person. I'm in the presence of greatness. I I don't know why I have this privilege to meet you. Even if we meet, let's say, political leaders, maybe people we don't particularly like, but because of their station, because of their status and their position, we we feel a certain reverence, if that could be the right word, a certain submission. Well, God is the infinite creator of the world. I think to bow before him in fear and reverence is entirely appropriate. Shunning evil is also the appropriate response. We're going to come into the presence of a God who is perfect, and we're going to like, yeah, I'm going to still be doing all the crazy stuff I used to do. I'm going to be doing all these sins. Don't worry about it. Of course not. In the presence of God, these things have to be shunned. They have to be pushed aside. So Job concludes that the primary means of growing in wisdom is not by investigation into the unknown. Yeah, let's look into it. No, it is by obedience to God. Wisdom, simply put, is a way of living before God. A famous Old Testament scholar wrote, The thesis that all human knowledge comes back to the question about commitment to God is a statement of penetrating discernment. One becomes competent and expert as far as the orders in life are concerned only if it begins from the knowledge about God. It's the fear of the Lord, it's the beginning of wisdom. I would say that this chapter, as wonderful as it is, stands as a warning to the three friends that any further speculation would be pointless and would be fruitless and in fact would be quite foolish and unwise. The way out of this impasse does not come from below, from this big debate that's going on, but it comes from above. It is the fear of the Lord. The solution will not come from a belief system of human beings from a theological system, but only as a gift from God. Now, some might ask, am I suggesting that only those who fear God have great abilities, great skills, great talents, and not at all? Not at all. If I were to say this, I would be easily proven wrong. But I will say that only those who have the fear of the Lord will understand and appreciate the context of their abilities. And I believe that on the final judgment day, the questions will be asked, where do you think your abilities came from? Did you not consider that they in fact were gifts from me? Did you not wish to know where they came from or who gave them to you? I think one's initial reaction to this chapter might be to be cautious or even alarmed, such praise of human beings. In part because we understand that only God is to be worshipped, and so we are deeply suspicious of anything that sort of elevates humanity, or anything else for that matter, that only God should be exalted. And we believe that human beings are fallen, deeply flawed, the Reformed doctrine of total depravity. So that's part of why I think on the Christian side, we're just a little skeptical. We're just very cautious about Job chapter 28. But I would say on a non-religious side, because we live in a world in which there is an assault on the human being, the individual and the value of life. It's happening and we may not, in fact, recognize it. One of the marks of our age is cynicism. And in an age of cynicism and great irony, all claims to truth All assertions or expressions are to be looked at ironically. Consider the following illustrations of this this assault on the significance of human beings. First of all, modern biographies. Rather than simply telling one story, modern biography takes it upon himself, the biographer, to explain why someone did what they did. Um, and it reeks of cynicism. In a book entitled Rescuers, the Lives of Heroes, the story is told of a man named Mosher, who rescued a woman in the apartment above him from being raped. He almost bled to death because of a knife wound from the attacker. This is what the author says about Mosher. Some might say that Mosher overcame his failure and frustration to do what he did. In fact, failure and frustration were the cause of his actions. They enabled him to act. They compelled him to act. If he hadn't been so unhappy, if he hadn't felt so trapped, he wouldn't have acted. Because he needed to be saved, he saved someone else. Wow. You know what Moshe's thinking. You know the answer to why he did what he did. Instead of seeing him as doing something courageous and heroic and saving someone's life, it's now re- simply reduced to, well, you know, you're a loser and... Being a loser sort of pushed you to do something rather dramatic. Joyce Carol Oates raises the same issue when she complains about biographies, about literary figures. She writes... Um, They so so mercilessly expose their subjects, so relentlessly catalog their most private, vulnerable, and least illuminating moments as to divest them of all mystery save the crucial and unexplained. In other words, they tell us all about this person. So there's no mystery. Just they've been ripped to shreds. There's only one mysterious thing that remains. How did a distinguished body of work emerge from so undistinguished a life? How did this loser come up with this great literature? And I would say that that, that viewpoint would say, yeah, let's forget Job 8, or 28. Let's not talk about how wise human beings are. I think another reason that we are so cynical is because we live in a climate of self-parody, at least in the entertainment world, in which it seems that few take themselves seriously. Um, And we sort of enjoy this. It's it's sort of fuel for amusement when someone can laugh at themselves. But in many ways, I would argue, it diminishes what it means to be human. It diminishes the individual. And then thirdly, we have the problem of the hero versus the celebrity. In In a cynical age, we are told indirectly or directly that there's no such thing as human greatness. So let's get rid of Job 28. The concept of the hero becomes more and more foreign. A celebrity, as Daniel Borson put it, is someone who is well-known for being well-known, who may or may not have a talent or skill. That's beside the point. They're simply well-known. A hero is someone who is heroic for character virtues. I think we have reached a point in our civilization when we think we have outgrown the need for heroes. Bertolt Brecht, the German playwright, in his play, Galileo, writes that after Galileo had recanted under the pressure from the Catholic Church, one of his students was quite sad and said, it is a sad land that has no heroes. And Galileo, supposedly, this is Bertolt Brecht putting the words in his mouth, no, rather it is a sad land that needs heroes. In other words, we don't need people to be heroic in our society, we just need celebrities. So the idea of human greatness? Nah, it's rejected. And any type of heroism, like Moshe, is simply seen through. Oh, I know why you did what you did. Unless I seem or appear cynical, I would argue that people in our day do not like heroes, they prefer celebrities. Because to be a celebrity, particularly now with the internet and with YouTube and things like that, you can become well-known for being well-known. And there isn't necessarily a lot of risk involved. And then, by the way, we have a whole industry, National Enquirer, that is devoted to tearing these people down. So again, Job is saying, how great is humanity and our society says "Yeah, no, not really not really Dick Kyes has written about this we have his book upstairs if you're interested and we actually have several of his talks on tapes Um, he compared the deaths of Princess Diana with that of Mother Teresa and he pointed out that when Princess Diana died there was this great outpouring of grief But when Mother Teresa died hardly a word hardly a word and he says the contrast is between someone that we could never be a princess and someone we could emulate Mother Teresa give our lives to those who are in need yeah so we don't want to really talk too much about that because I could actually give my life to do that let's rather Let's talk about this person that I could never be. I'm convinced we need to take to heart as Christians what Job tells us in this chapter. The church is to be countercultural, to give the world what it does not have but desperately needs. I think, in many ways, we are to be the new humanists. We are the ones to speak of the greatness of human beings. You're like, well, wait a minute, Damon, aren't human beings sinners? Yes, they are, and in need of redemption. And they can be redeemed. Forget what Bildad said, they can be redeemed. Jesus gave his life to save human beings. Doesn't that mean they have value? In a world that seems to trash that which is of value in human beings, the church should stand up and say no. Human beings are actually quite amazing They're made in the image of God And they can by God's grace Be remade into the image Of Jesus Christ But let's not go too far And forget something The truth about man Is that for all his abilities What he or she has Comes from God It is God who has gifted us we reflect his glory. And the source of wisdom is God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let's not forget that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are in a, a difficult, a very strange time, but as we enter this, the final weeks of this political Cycle. we hear people tearing each other down saying rather unsavory things about each other and in the struggle for power what it means to be human is lost the value of humanity is lost the glory of humanity is lost that we are made in your image that you sent your son to redeem us It can't be worthless Sometimes in arguing so strongly that people are sinners And they are We go too far And forget that they are significant Other times we go too far the other way Praising the glory and the genius of one person or another And we forget that they are fallen as well. I thank you for Job 28. For what he points out so clearly. What we so easily forget. All that we have comes from you. And if we are to seek to be wise. We must live with the fear of the Lord. That we must be wise In living and walking before you To shun evil is understanding May we understand that I thank you That we could gather And worship you on this day May we have a sense of your presence In the coming days As we walk through this world May your spirit and your grace go with us. We thank you for your love. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.